Today's episode is all different buyer uh, profiles and things that make it easy to purchase, things that make it challenging to purchase, and then three different buyer profiles that we want to talk to about. So without further ado, talk to me about what makes it easy to buy in Manhattan. Well, the number one thing to think to, to realize, the only reason why we're talking about this is because we live in the world of cooperatives. Um, and cooperatives impose these financial restrictions above and beyond what a bank's going to require. They use basically the same two uh, rules of thumb. One is your debt to income ratio and two is your post-purchase liquidity. So how much money you readily have access to penalty-free uh, after you close. So debt to income ratio refers to your uh, adjusted gross income, your total income, the percentage that covers your outgoing fixed housing expenses or fixed expenses. So it includes things such as student loans, car loans, other mortgages, and then the proposed expenses on the property that you're looking at. Uh, an example, a bank may say your, your debt to income ratio can be 40%. The rule of thumb for a co-op is going to be somewhere in the 25 to 30% range. Um, so that they're just more stringent. So that, that requires us, and one of our biggest jobs as a real estate agent here in the city is to make sure that we're showing people properties that they can afford. More, more pertinent, uh, what we're going to talk about today is us being a form of insurance for our clients, because we've been through the process so many times, we know how to avoid the pitfalls. Um, and we also know how to present things to boards so that they're easily understood uh, and we know how to get the answers to them before they even ask the questions. Okay. okay, so if I were to ask you, what are the things that make it easy for a buyer to buy? Number one, where they get their income from. So if they're a normal W-2 employee, mostly salaried position, that's the easiest from an income perspective. One of the pieces of the puzzle for the, the board application puzzle that we have to put together is an employment reference letter. It's very simple if they work at such and such a thing, you know, a doctor or, some, or a lawyer and they're non-equity partner and they, their salary is $500,000 a year. Here's their pay stubs, you know, they get a pay stub. It's very simple, very straightforward. So that's one piece on the debt to income. What makes, so John, if I kick it back to you, what takes it to the next level of difficulty when it comes to somebody's income? Income that is not going to be steady. It's going to fluctuate. And so they might have made a couple of hundred thousand dollars this year, but two years ago, they only made $30,000. Yeah. Things that can make it a challenge. Now, fluctuating income, can we can get over that hump. And a lot of times, you know, people, investment bankers, for instance, they have very fluctuating income. Usually it's high every year, but many times it's, it, it can go from six figures to seven figures in one year to the next. And it just yeah. depends on, you know, their compensation structure. Lots of times if they're, if they're investment bankers from the perspective of buying and selling businesses, for instance, they may have a deal, a very large deal that closes and they get the cash out equity of that, of that uh, particular mm -hmm. business that they sold off. So, or big real estate holding or whatever that is. Or so, funds. Funds. So they'll look through uh, what a board will look at is they'll look at a history of income. And then if there's a, a giant fluctuations, they will take 
for instance, an average of the last three years. Now, if there's if it goes 50,000, 2 million, 12,000, well then, you know, we'll probably go back our what I would suggest and that sort of a scenario to a uh, to a buyer is we go back five years or seven years and we show that, you know, yeah, maybe it was bad income, bad uh, adjusted gross income two out of the last three years, but maybe the previous four and five were years four and five were much better. So I think that I think also just to interject that um, if if we do see that kind of fluctuation in income, what is the thing that we're going to totally look at to help us justify the buyer being qualified to buy the apartment? And it's three very, very simple words from Jerry Maguire. Show me the money. Show the, the money. Four words. I screwed it up. Show me the money. How much money do they have? The second piece of uh, the second rule of thumb is the, the post-purchase liquidity. It refers to how much liquid you have in the bank, investment accounts, et cetera. Basically, anything that you can get your hands on re uh, readily within you know, a short period of time, a matter of weeks, penalty-free. Penalty-free is the uh, sort of the, the linchpin there. And one note, one note, I'm going to just dive, dive in. Non-retirement assets, unless you are of an age where you can withdraw those from those retirement accounts at, with no penalty. If yeah. you can, they're considered liquid. If you're not of retirement age, they are illiquid asset. Uh, so yes, non-retirement uh, for most people. Now, as you said, it, there's different rules for different types of retirement accounts and such. So that that goes a, dives a little deeper uh, if we got to get into it. But standard rule of thumb, post-purchase liquidity, two to three years in those fixed expenses that we just talked referenced in uh, in the debt to income side. But John, where would that not suffice? When you go to buy in a co-op, there are gonna be different financing requirements. So we look at the financing requirements and some buildings will, co-ops I'm talking specifically, will allow you to finance up to 80%, others 75, 70%. But then in buildings that are going to restrict financing, let's say anywhere between 30 to 50% financing, which you'll find on Park Avenue, on Fifth Avenue, on Central Park West, in very, very uh, expensive cooperative neighborhoods, that will, that will give you an indication that the building is not going to be looking for a post-purchase liquidity of two to three years. Yeah. So buildings can become so restrictive that they're looking for at least one, two, even three times the purchase price liquid post-closing. So if you're looking at a $2 million apartment, they're going to want to see $4 million post-closing. So whether you buy cash or you spend a million dollars and finance the million, they want to see at least two to $6 million post-closing. Yeah. And How also nothing written in stone, you know, they, they do look at a full picture. So income requirements tend to stay about the same. I mean, if you're under 25%, that's sort of uh, still a rule of thumb that exists, but they will look at a full picture. They'll look at uh, you know what you do for a living, even as well, which gets into gets you outside the financial side. But so there's no steadfast rule there. Just because a building allows 50%, I mean, we've seen Park Avenue co-ops, Fifth Avenue co-ops that allow 50% financing, and 50% of the purchase price is okay in post-purchase liquidity. 
the majority of these co-ops are 75 or 80% financing co-ops, two to three years in those fixed expenses. So if you're spending 5,000 a month, that's 60,000 a year, that's 120,000 would be two years of those expenses, if those are your only expenses. But if you have auto loans or other mortgages and, and real estate taxes and such on another property, you add that all together. But they leave out things like even kids schooling, as expensive as it is here, if you have one or two or any kids in private school, and it could be thirty-five, dollars $40,000 a year, they don't even look at that because that's more of an elective uh, elective. Uh, expense. expense. So we talked about fluctuating income, uh, income sources being a W-2 versus a 1099. There's, there's that entrepreneur. So serial entrepreneurs, people that have, because uh, rarely do you have an entrepreneur that only has one business, frankly. We've done a handful of these business owners. It's very complicated. You have to look at um, how, not necessarily how much money is on their tax return because it many it, most of the time doesn't reflect how much money they're actually making. So we could do a really deep dive on that. We're not going to in this podcast, but we wanted to mention that's something that right out of the gates, if you're an entrepreneur, you're a business owner, even more reason to work with an experienced agent that can go through and ask you specific questions, get you to very... Uh, very good bankers to make sure they're buttoned up on, on what your qualifications are, et cetera. So that can get very, very complicated um, and is so specific that it, it warrants a whole nother conversation that we're not going to talk about here. There's also how you want to take ownership. And if I, John, so quick question, this will be a very quick section. If you have a buyer that comes to the table and they say, oh, hey, John, I want to buy a property in New York City. Um, I want to buy it. I have to buy it in the name of an LLC, or I have a trust for my kids, or I want to buy, I don't have any money here and I'm a foreigner. Uh, don't file any U.S. tax returns. I don't have a job here, et cetera. What would be your response in that sort of scenario? You've got to buy a condominium. <laughs> and that's it. All right. On to the next subject. Uh, right. But, yeah. the, but the things that are going to, exactly. So a condo buyer will be, it'll give you far more flexibility than yeah. a cooperative, hands Most down. Most of the time those people want a condominium anyways, because if they're buying in the name of an entity, it means that they want the ability, as much flexibility with it as possible. They want to buy it and maybe hold it as a rental property or something like that. So that's the very quick and easy answer. Anybody wants to buy in the name of an entity, you got to buy a condominium. Correct. So let me ask you a question now. So sure. in the scenario that we talked about, show me the money, making sure that you have strong income, uh, preferably W-2, but that's not necessarily, but you make a lot of money. You make enough, I should say you make enough money to support the apartment. You have post-purchase liquidity. Yeah. Your debt to income ratio is in line with the building. What if you don't have those things? Have um, a higher debt to income ratio, your first time job, how does one sidestep those factors that are um, making it harder to buy? Well, frankly, you get help, you know, and where do you get that help? Typically it's from your parents. It's from a close relative. Most of, we'll just talk about parents. Yes. That's oh, yeah. 5% well, of the time. So 
And there's, there's a few different ways that uh, you could get parental help. Um, one is a gift, as you mentioned. Uh, so just a cash gift. We're going to gift him the down payment, him or her the down payment and blah, blah, blah. Two would be co-purchasing the property with them. And, you know, sometimes co-ops will will not allow that. They won't, they will want a buyer to completely stand on their own two feet. They don't need help. They're more established, et cetera. Um, so co-purchasing would be one where the parents go on the stock and lease. They go through the whole process. They get interviewed by the board uh, and the board issues their, their uh, approval based on the combination profile of the parents and the child. Um, two would be, uh, the third way would be uh, most common would be a guarantor, which the, the only difference there is that the guarantor and they supply all of the financial requirements that a board package would wanna see. So financial statement, tax returns, employment letter, um, they'll run a credit check on them, et cetera. But anything having to do with financials, what you don't have to supply are reference letters and such uh, and all of the forms that you need to sign off on. Because basically what a guarantor is doing is they're saying, okay, uh, I'm gonna be financial re financially responsible for this but I don't have any rights to the apartment. So you have none of the rights, but all the responsibilities. Whereas a co-applicant has all the same rights as the, the child, we'll call them child, but usually it's a, you know, uh, somebody that's maybe not even so young because you have plenty of people here that, that work and still need assistance, especially on the liquidity side, uh, well into their thirties um, or, or longer. So, um, so uh, you have all the same rights and responsibilities. So that's the differentiating factor is that in, in the co-op, when you're co-purchasing, you get all the same rights. Guarantor, you do not. Which basically means you could move, the, you, the child could move out, the parents could move in. And then there is, no, that, that, that was good. And then there is the scenario, did you cover the parent buying for the child? So the parent has the stock and the lease certificate and the contract of sale in their name, and the child, the working child is, is an occupant of the apartment. Yeah. That becomes even trickier. Buildings don't like that. They want to know how old the kid is. You know, as you were saying, are they working? Um, because they don't, buildings don't like to have parents buying and then letting, letting their, their kid, literally 17, 18, 19 year old college kid live in the apartment. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, so each scenario is very different. So, yeah. What's a little known fact around that is that if you look and you dissect these pro uh, proprietary lease, so the proprietary lease is the document that uh, a co-op owner, tenant, shareholder uh, would sign off on when they go. And it sets up the rights to the, the tenant, the new tenant shareholder um, and the, the, the agreement between the co-op being the landlord, essentially, and the new uh, owner, a new tenant shareholder. So it is a, uh, a sublease agreement or a lease agreement. And in every proprietary lease, it actually does state that your, your immediate relatives will have rights to the apartment. So they can't keep your children from using the apartment, nor can they keep your parents using from using the apartment. So that's a little known fact in buildings try to put in their bylaws where they can't 
uh, do those things where people can't stay there unless the tenant shareholder is there and such. But legally, from my understanding, and I've talked to a couple of attorneys about this because I had an instance where it was a little tricky. And they said, I, I actually found out that most proprietary leases allow for your immediate uh, relatives to use the space. At the end of the day, if you move in or your kid moves in, a grown you know, child moves in, or your parents use the apartment or whatever, and they don't cause any problems, most buildings, they would never make an issue of it. Correct. But before you're a, an owner of the building, that's where they're going to get they catch wind of it, they could easily decline the package, yeah. Yeah. you know, and not want it's that kind of It's certainly not something we want to, you don't want to yeah. put it, go into this trying to deceive the board um, with what the real intent is of the usage of the apartment. Like, I certainly don't want any clients that are, are looking to actively deceive the board because that is building a, a transaction on a house of cards. The more money that you have in New York City to buy a piece of real estate, the better off you are. Yeah. You've got to have, you know, think in terms of, let's dumb it down a little bit. Excellent credit, no debt, ideally. Um, be able to easily afford whatever size apartment you're going to buy a $350,000 apartment or a $3 million apartment. Steady income, enough income to support the apartment. And a lot of people, and then if there are scenarios where you have the, that kind of a, of a uh, profile, you're, you have a good agent who helps you to navigate the market, you're going to be successful in finding a piece of real estate. Our, our first discussion with any buyer, you know, we have very different styles, but we, but that's one of the number one things to discuss with, with a new buyer is which product do you want to buy? There's co-ops or condominiums. Of course, there's townhouses as well, but that the, the townhouse buyer is usually, I want a townhouse. So co-op versus condo and those two differences that we've talked about a few times in different podcasts of usage and transfer of ownership. One of those is do you want to purchase it in the name of an entity rather than your personal names? So very quickly, people come to the conclusion of it's got to be this, got to be that, or either one. We see that as well, of course, uh, the primary users that don't, don't really care. Um, so listen, you have there's so many different financial profiles out there. It's really hard to put into a, a, a podcast like this is what, this is what it is everybody's different. But the number one thing to take away is, like you said, it requires a lot more money than what a bank tells you you need to have in order to buy a piece of real estate in most cases. Sure. City, because the majority of our inventory are still these things we call cooperatives, which just, you know, they complicate things. It, 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 and that's number one is when you go to try to purchase it, they want to see the money. And, and it's, it's not something that you can skirt around. It's not something you can deceive because um, they will do their due diligence. And if they feel any sort of um, misrepresentation or anything, that's the number one way to be rejected by a board. Definitely. And where the seller gets security that you're not going to do that is they're holding 10% of your money in escrow. So, and what we get with offers is a 10%, that 10% with a financial statement. And if that differs widely from what you supply to the board, you're asking to lose that money. Yeah. Um, so it's not to be taken lightly. We're talking about oh. a lot of money in most cases, in any case, really. 
so challenge would be not having enough money, problem, credit problems. You're a pied-a-terre buyer. We didn't even talk about that versus a primary user, having it be your home, a primary home. And then, you know, scenarios, depending on the scenario though, and we have years of track record of helping buyers in all different kinds of scenarios. Yeah. So we're not just simply saying, you know, you have to fit into one particular category to buy a piece of Manhattan real estate. Yeah, and a lot of the times these call us. a lot of the times the issues or or the challenges are with the first-time buyers and we've both worked with a tremendous amount of first-time buyers and trying to figure out, okay, how do we how do we get it to a place where we know a co-op's going to be more than likely approving of that candidate. Correct. Because the last thing anybody wants to go through, the broker, the attorneys, certainly the buyer or the seller is the board, board, board rejection. It is just such a waste of time. That is such an, a deflator. Yeah. Ego, emotional deflator. It's a real bad scenario. <laughs> I, get, I get so much out of it listening to you I, you could say the same thing to me, but don't worry about it. So, but no, but I, I really enjoy listening to you. I would use you as a real estate agent. Well, the feeling is mutual, John. Uh, as always, everybody stay safe, stay healthy. And, and remain in gratitude. And we will see you next week. See you later. Oh, oh. Thanks for watching or listening to the John and Jonathan Sell NYC podcast. If you want to find us online or sign up to get our monthly and quarterly market stats, comment over to our website, johnandjonathansellnyc.com, or you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and everywhere else with the handle at johnandjonathansellnyc. And if you want to grab the show notes, just go to johnandjonathansellnyc.com slash podcast. If this show was entertaining, helpful, or informative, consider telling friends and family or leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those are some of the best ways of supporting our efforts, and we would greatly appreciate it. Thanks again for tuning in. We can't wait to share what's coming up next. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss our next episode, and we'll see you next time.